Welcome in, one and all. Once again, you are joining Travis Dufour for the Travis Dufour Show, episode 10. Without any further ado, introducing to you, uh, well, it, this shouldn't be an introduction. You know this man. It's Mike Yatsko. Dig it, daddy. Yes, and once again, we are on the road to Christmas. A lot of festivities going on. We've been partaking in the movies. We've been watching the Santa Claus. We've been doing oh, yeah. it up, living it up. Yeah, the last episode of the Santa Claus uh, TV series just came out yesterday. We have not watched it. We're still one episode behind. Uh, so it's the final one that we have to watch. We'll watch it tomorrow, probably. But uh, I got to say, I don't know if you saw this, but the Santa Claus seat has been renewed for a second season. They're doing another season officially. They announced it today. So, all right. Hey, I wonder if so, there's going to be down. any more Satan references. I. Yeah, you guys didn't seem to. I guess that just bothered me last week. But that's cool. That's cool. We some people like Satan and some people don't. I personally don't. I was. He's not my. He's not my bag. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's just I have a weird connection. You know, uh, back whenever I was a stalker at Walmart, there was a little kid who walked up to me and he looked dead in his mom's face and he was like, "Is that Satan?" Because you know the red hair, the sideburns, the pointy yeah, beard. I can see the resemblance. Yeah. So it's uncanny, really. I can't help how it look, but uh, I'm definitely in the Christmas spirit today. Something from Amazon arrived that I ordered for myself. I got, uh, I don't even know if you know these existed, but I didn't either. It's a foot pad. It's a heating. It's a heated foot pad. So like I have wood floors and I'm on the basement level of my house. So my feet just get absolutely freezing, even with socks on, just freezing, just working down here. And so I found a heated mat from amazon 40 bucks and it was delivered today and it's awesome it's life-changing i feel nice and toasty so that was like an early christmas present for you for myself yeah yeah as yeah that's those are the best kind of gifts the best gifts are the ones that you give yourself now do you do that do you buy yourself christmas gifts yeah because honestly like there's even people i'll, I'll say like oh i would like this like i give a few things that i want and then Usually they, they just don't get those things. They just get, they always think like, oh no, I got a better idea. And that's fine, you know, whatever. But literally was giving you the exact things that I wanted. So usually I end up buying the things that I want. Hey, you can't go wrong with gift cards. Am I right? Yeah. Oh, gift cards are great. I love gift cards. I've uh, really People think up. it's like a cheap, easy gift, but gift card, you could buy whatever the heck you want. Yes. I don't think so. I, I've really my favorite is definitely the Amazon gift cards. Oh, love those because oh, Amazon, you could buy literally whatever you want. I mean, cocaine. I mean, whatever you want. It's it's all there on Amazon from A to Z. I definitely didn't know about the hard drugs. Oh, yeah. yeah it's all about the prime day, man. You can get it shipped day one. Same day delivery. And That's as we've sweet, seen sweet cocaine, <laughs> as, as we've seen from the Santa Claus uh, uh, you know, this new series, uh, they kind of introduced the everyday single, like you order something a second later, you get it. Do you think that's going to be a reality? Yeah. Every day is a uh, Christmas that, uh, it kind of feels like that already. Literally you can get whatever you want. Like you, you click a couple buttons and it shows up at your door sometimes later that day. I mean, Amazon, depending on where you live, you can order something that morning and have it delivered later that day. So I know we have that uh, same-day delivery for some items, at least. We also do. We have an Amazon uh, factory warehouse right uh, right in the city next to me. So, yeah, we yeah. get that, too. That's handy. Didn't you used to work at Amazon, or that was uh, FedEx? 
Yeah, I was uh, a longtime FedExer. FedExer. What's it like there? I'm, I'm, I imagine around the holidays, it's freaking crazy. Crazy, man. It's usually like a skeleton crew throughout the year, but about October, you get a shit ton of temps uh, coming through the door. Are they really throwing those packages around like they're just chucking them into the truck and like without any care in the world? If I was having a bad day, I would fucking annihilate a package. Oh, Jesus. Well, I'm glad none of my packages touched your hands. Or maybe they maybe they did because I did get a couple. There was this one I got where it was just mangled to shit. Like it was just un unusable. Maybe that was yours. That was your doing. Oh, my least favorite thing. I don't know if this is like if you've heard of this, but we would get like huge skids of fruit. Fruit? Fruit, you say? Heavy fucking fruit, like boxes of oranges for like with the old Christmas uh, uh, decorations, the snowflake decorations on the box. It's, you know, the festive fruits. Yeah, sounds real heavy. You know, that reminds me real quick. I used to work at Walmart years ago, and one of my jobs was a stock boy was I worked in the grocery department. So I'd be stocking, you know, all the groceries. And one of the things I would be responsible for is milk. And so they would just stack these pallets high with everything, you know, all all the stuff. And there was this pallet stacked high with milk. And, like, I was just feeling super confident that day. So I was, like, going a little faster than usual with my pallet jack. And I just turned this corner not realizing all that weight has to – that's going to go somewhere. The entire pallet of milk, all of it, falls over. And I'm talking gallon just burst all over the floor, gallons and gallons of just milk (laughs) – covered the floor and i was right next to the uh, women's clothing department so it got on some of the clothes this one woman it fell on one of the coat my co-workers it actually fell on her i saw her i saw a whole stack fall on her she was drenched <laughs> drenched with milk she and uh, she was furious and i and i i'm i'm I don't know if me saying it this way sounds racist. I swear to swear to you, I'm not. She's black and she does not like white people. And so, like, if there was, she definitely didn't. I could tell. Like, she looked at because she always gave me like mean looks. She gave everybody like you know just. She's like, I always people. knew this was going to happen. And she always gave like the you. white people mean looks, and people would say things like, "Oh yeah, she just doesn't like them for some reason." And I just thought, you know, I thought you know whatever. It is, it's whatever. But she definitely didn't like white people after that day. So I ruined that lady for life, and uh, it's uh, it was crazy. I felt so She's bad. Like, I she actually, that. she had to get sent home. She she couldn't finish her shift. I she didn't I mean she soaked down to her underoos. So <laughs> you saw her in the, you saw her in the parking lot wringing out her underwear. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought for sure I was getting fired that day. Sure enough, no, I was not. That's not how to get fired at Walmart. That's not a way to get fired. <laughs> So did you stick around to clean it up or were you like, oh, somebody better fucking start? You know what's great about different departments is that was not my department. So somebody (laughs) else had to actually come and clean it up and I just got to go do other stuff. Like I just did the awkward like looking around like, oh, well, this is awkward. And I took the half pallet of milk. I didn't even bother stocking the milk. I was like, "Eh, this ain't for me today. Not stocking the milk. Like I don't even know where we keep the mops, you know, like I'm not. I can't really help with this. <laughs> and I wait. I was nervous. I was waiting all day for someone to like call me in the office and say, "Dude, you're getting. Your, I'm sorry. You you knew this was coming. You're fired." But no, not even a write up. They just they just said, "Oh, be careful next time." You know, watch watch around. Watch going around those bends. Let me try to go tit for tat with you here. I love telling this story. I haven't gotten to tell it in a long time. It's been over ten years since I worked at Walmart. But uh, you worked at Walmart it, too. Oh, yeah. Fun. 
fellow alumni. That's awesome. Two years, stalker. Yep, stock you boy. longer than me. Work. I was a stock boy. I was a stock boy. Yeah. But uh, it was just another night. I worked the night shift. Were you on the day shift? It was day. Yeah. I don't think I ever worked. Yeah. So overnight. you didn't do shit. You left it all for the night shift to do it. Didn't oh, gee, no. I always thought the overnight people had it easy. That's not the case. <laughs> what? I never worked a night shift, so I just assumed they just fucked around. I didn't. I don't know. What do I know? Oh man, I wish. I wish that was the case. Yeah. The for my Walmart, the night shift was the workhorses. I mean, you don't really got anybody in the store, so you can really put your shit out onto the floor and get it on the shelves. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. But um. So there was one night, uh, our cleaning guy, he was on the street sweeper, but it was designed to be inside the store, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen those. Yeah. Um, yeah. The name of that is, uh, I want to call it a Zamboni, but I know it's not a fucking Zamboni. Yeah. Zamboni is what they do on the ice, but uh, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, so he knows that I was a smoker and he was a smoker too. And he forgot his lighter in his car. Um, and he was actually like physically handicapped. So the only job he could do was sit on the sweeping deal and kind of ride around the stores. The only thing he could do. And he comes around the corner. I'm in the, uh, I believe it was the beer aisle on this night. And he says, Hey, Trav, think I can borrow that lighter. I'm about to go on break. I was like, of course you can. You're my friend. I love you. Pull out the lighter. And it was perfect. Like I fucking underhand threw it. He caught it with one hand and it was wow. just so smooth. It was just so like smooth. the movies, just like the movies. I had a fucking pair of shades. I pulled out, popped them on, but anyway, <laughs> he, he gets the lighter and he goes, Hey, thanks. Goes to turn the wheel. Boom. Fucking hits this big dis bottles of wine come crashing down oh no oh, have no, you awful. ever smelled 40 bottles of wine i've smelled one bottle so i could imagine amplifying that by 40 would be a lot like dark nasty smelling fucking probably wine. overpowering in that uh in that quantity i couldn't i for the rest of the night, I couldn't work in that aisle because it just, oh my God, it would give you a migraine immediately. That's crazy. Did you try to slurp some up but off the floor? He, well, he, he fucking took down that whole display and just in, immediately this grown man just starts crying. I see tears rolling down his face. He starts crying. <laughs> he couldn't believe he was he over, a mistake like overwhelmed. That. Yeah, that's a huge <laughs> mistake. I mean, there's mistakes, and then there's mistakes like that. They Pretty pulled crazy. him in the office, and I I don't even know what happened. Like, I never saw him again. Oh, they murdered him. They, <laughs> they murdered that dude. He's gone. He's dead. That's what I was expecting. I was expecting to get murdered that day. And he was a big boy. They probably had to wrap him up in a couple of the uh Did rug. you see any, like, extra large trash bags get taken out that particular day? we we didn't we didn't have extra large trash bags for weeks after that <laughs> oh, that's interesting yeah someone should look into that yeah. file a missing persons or something yeah so that's that's my walmart story there wow what a way to start the show that's crazy yeah who knew the show was going to start off like that with the walmart stories <laughs> <laughs> uh did you work at walmart for the holiday season christmas uh you know i actually oh i did I mean, I worked, I was an employee there, 
but I was somehow I'm somehow really lucky. It was it was my first year there, and like pretty much if you, it was your first year, first couple years, you were not getting off on the holiday. But for yeah. some miracle, I was off. I didn't even request it. I was just off. And I remember so my so many of my coworkers who had been there ten plus years who did have to work that day, fucking pissed. And I mean pissed at me. Like they were furious at me. I'm like I didn't make the schedule. I didn't do this. I didn't, didn't even request it off. But I'll take it. Oh, but there was a couple people who were like, oh, you should switch with me. You know, I've been here 10 plus years and I have kids and all this. And I was like, no, sorry, I'm I'm not switching. I'm not. The Lord blessed me with a day off on Christmas and I'm taking it. Oh, so fuck I, yeah. yeah. I, I don't blame you there. A lot of the old heads would probably be like, you know, if that or maybe was that me, was Thanksgiving. Could... That sounds like Thanksgiving, I think. Oh, OK, I think Black Friday. It. Yeah, Black Friday, Thanksgiving. And everyone was because that's the biggest day, like shopping day of the year or whatever. So that's what it was. It was. That was when stores were like uh, really big and opening on Thanksgiving Day and black, you know, to get that early Black Friday deals, all those deals out. But yeah, I got out of that, dude. I was I don't know about you, but I, I had to work Black Friday and I was fucking hyped for it. You were hyped, hyped was, to see a bunch of people plowing through the doors. I want to see people get trampled. I want to see a fight. I want to see fucking something. Give me something. How many people died that day? Uh, none that year, yeah, none that year, but, um, uh, but like you, but like you, I had only been working at Walmart maybe a month and, and they had me scheduled and everything, but yeah. because of my inexperience and because I actually got hired, not as a stalker, but they hired Travis motherfucking Dufour as a door greeter, a door greeter. I thought that was for just old people. At night, the, at the night. nighttime door greeting. Who are you greeting at nighttime? I didn't see anybody come in. Yeah, I bet. It's fucking stood there. <laughs> but, but uh, so they knew that, you know, first year, just a door greeter, not a heavy hitter. Uh, they had, they told me, okay, so you have to work 10 hours that night. And only at this specific time do you have to be at this designated location where we're selling 40 inch TVs. You have to just before that time, just look busy. After that time, just look busy. And the entire time that I was supposed to look busy, I was just sm chain smoking cigarettes in the break room. Oh, geez. My, my, on the floor. I would hide out in the bathroom. That's where I would just like just text out, you know, because like cell phones were just becoming widespread at that point. So, like, I would just be texting, like, my buddies or something like that. And, you know, just pretend it was, like, an extended shit break or something. Oh, for sure. I'd be texting for sure. Because you're right. It was only, it was, like, two or three years later, smartphones were pretty much in yeah. everyone's hand. Yep. Around 2007. No, 2008, probably. But, yeah. I, oh, shit. I got my first smartphone, like, 2012. 2012. Yeah. Actually, yeah, because you're right. Probably It wasn't widespread. The first iPhone came out in 2007, so not everyone had those. I remember saving up uh, a lot of money to get the first iPhone. It was a, uh, I it was all my own. It was just like birthday money and some other things from working and stuff. So I actually was able to get it on my own for you know it was crazy, but it was nice being. It was like I was one of two people in the whole school that had an iPhone. Oh, and now, bad ass! And though. now everybody has them and nobody gives a shit. <laughs> That's bragging rights, though. Was it, it was cool? at the time for sure? Yeah, oh, definitely at the time. Oh yeah, everybody was like, oh, let me see that. Let me see that. Like, oh, like, what phone do you have? Oh, it's an iPhone. They're like, oh, yeah, let's compare it to my track phone. <laughs> it's that, 
You know what was cool though? Those razor phones. I've never got to have one of those, but I always wanted one. The really thin. I knew a couple phones. people. Uh, yeah. I think it was called a katana. That was the one yeah. I saw. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I like those. But uh, I remember with, before the smartphone came out, um, you could pull up websites on your phone, but it took like a half hour to load one page. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, dude. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Though that was, that's almost still like that. I feel like we haven't come that much further now. Like sometimes I'll be sitting there waiting for a web page. But like, dude, what is going on? Like, what's that new social media site? Hive? Hive, yeah, I've, I'm not on it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, dude, give it a shot. Try it out because it will fucking put you ten years ago. Whenever a website took forever to load, it just doesn't load ago. for me. What's the point of that one? Does it have like a special gimmick or something? Or you can have a status profile picture, upload pictures. It's a social media. I'll show. be honest, that sounds like a Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like this sounds really that familiar. Does sound like Facebook. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the, some people might notice that on the show tonight, uh, Josh isn't on the show, Josh, yeah, it took us a while to get to that. The fact that uh, he's not even on the show, we just kind of carried on. Well, we're not going to dive into that. I was just going to yeah. mention that Josh actually had a phone whenever we were uh, kids and uh, his, he was the one he'd be like, Oh, let's look up the wrestling news. And we'd fucking yeah. stare at his phone for 30 minutes. Yeah. That, oh yeah. Yeah. I, when when uh, you were first able to start doing that on your phones, go look at the browser and stuff. Yeah, wrestling news was my go-to. Yeah. Even now, I don't even watch wrestling that much. I truly don't. Like, I don't watch Raw, SmackDown, AEW. I'll catch clips on YouTube, you know, and stuff like that. But I religiously, daily check wrestling news as if I'm still invested in watching it every day. Like, I still. Yeah, that's just how I keep up with it. Like, that's how I still know what's going on. So, like, if somebody says, oh, do you know? Do you see Rob? Well, no, but you know, I generally know what's happening. Not like every storyline, but like the main stuff. Yeah, I guess I don't have to look it up because I don't know about you, but uh, about 70 to 80% of my Facebook feed is wrestling. So I'm going to, I can see imagine. Feed. I can imagine. Yeah. Cause you got a lot of uh, wrestlers that, you know, wrestlers, promoters, you know, friends, people in the business, all kinds that you've met over the years, probably just filling up your friends list and all the if pages you and stuff. If you folks, if you people who tune into the show thought that that was the end of the wrestling content this episode, you're wrong because we have a mailbag. A mailbag? A mailbag, you say? A mailbag. Awesome. Did you ever watch Blue's Clues? One of my favorite shows of all time. Mail time. Mail time. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. Mail. Wow, you remember the whole fucking thing. Rock, dude, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sad to say. Actually, not sad to say. It was an awesome show. I don't care. It, it was, was a good show. pretty good. Pretty good. It was uh, good until uh, Steve left. Once Steve left, I checked out. Completely checked out. Once his brother or cousin or whoever he was showed up, I was out. Yeah, I think it was his nephew's son. I don't know. Something fucking yeah. weird was happening there. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? All I knew was I was done. But guys, I thought something fun to do this episode was uh, over the week, I was opening up my dms for questions any kind of questions that you didn't hear get answered on episode one through five season one of the travis do four show those episodes covering my entire wrestling career of course you know of course 17 years yeah. we can't get every fucking story in there no hell no you probably could have gone 10 episodes if you wanted to 
dude, easily we could have done that. So you but, had people slide into your DMs, huh? Oh, they slid right in. And something nice. I think would be fun is if I'm not just going to answer these, Mike, you're going to answer them too with your oh, own answer. Me? Okay, I'll do the best I can. Okay, starting off. Uh, the first question I got, which uh, I've got about, about eight, nine questions here. Um, which did I prefer, the baby face or heel? Now, before I answer, Mike, if you were in the business, putting the grind in, training, dieting, doing everything you fucking could to make it, what do you think that you would have preferred? Baby face, getting those cheers, feeling that rush, getting the crowd up, or being that piece of shit, dirty heel? There was definitely a time in my life where I thought that was going to be my life, for, but then it was just way too much work, way too much. Man, if I was going to be me, though, that was going to be me in the business as a wrestler, I got to say, there's no choice for me but to be that son of a bitch, bad guy heel. Like I just love to be the bad guy. Like it looked like so much fun. You pick any bad guy in history from, Oh, I don't know. Even Alberto Del Rio. I liked him. You know, you pick uh, MJF of today, uh, Roddy Piper, just any bad guy you pick. Those are the cool guys. Those are the guys that I followed the most that, you know, so yeah, definitely, definitely the bad guy. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, you had some great examples. Would you, Agree that probably the number one heel of all time, Vince McMahon. He's he's up there, but I don't know. Probably overall, yeah. But Triple H was kind of up there too. I remember hating his world title reign because I was, you know, that's that was when I started getting into wrestling was two thousand one or whatever, and like he would not drop the belt to anyone. Like he just won it and then held it for like two and a half years or some shit, and. He really uh, did. It was pretty crazy. So, like, I remember hating Triple H. But now I, I love him and have so much respect for him. It's kind of crazy. I See, I, I'm glad that we're giving Triple H his flowers right now because he was. he. Uh, I used his theme in my backyard days for a certain period. Um, there was a girl who lived in my neighborhood. She was... She would play Stephanie McMahon, and I would play Triple H uh, whenever we were doing some of the backyard shows, uh, yeah. some of my first ones. So, I always came out to Kane's music. I just loved his music so much. And I'd pretend to you know, raise my hands up in the air and, and pretend there was pyro coming out. <laughs> yeah. Fuck I still yeah. do that. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do yeah. that. No. I feel like to this day. <laughs> to this day, every morning. When my boss gives me a deadline, I'm like, oh, yeah? Well, how do you think about this? <laughs> Like, what, what do you what do you got what are you doing what are you doing there <laughs> do, do you go on webcam with your boss does he see you do stuff like that no uh we we do uh, we do audio <laughs> audio we don't do the video too much that's funny uh okay so i'll go ahead and answer it um obviously at the beginning of my career I felt like it was the obvious choice for me to go heal uh being the small guy Red hair, pale skin, freckles. That doesn't scream baby face to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd have to have a pretty good fucking heel partner to get. Seamus comes to mind. You just want to boo the guy. Yeah. Uh, I don't even, you know, Seamus hasn't had like a real notable baby face run in my head, too. He, he's known as a heel. I think that he's yeah. his career. People look back and be like, yeah, Seamus was a great bad guy. Yeah. And. 
I think that people will look at me like that too, but hell yeah. A later in my career, after I hurt my neck, um, after I hurt my neck, I was pretty much babyface my last five years that I was a wrestler. And that was such a nice challenge because uh, being a heel is kind of easy. It's it's not easy, but yeah. it's easier than being a babyface, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, feel- it's really hard to get people to like genuinely cheer you, right? Like that's got to be tough. Yeah. And and as a baby face, you have to constantly be moving. You can't die on the people. You have to keep giving them something. And it's just it takes a lot of energy. It consumes a lot of energy. And as, as a, a heel, heel, you could just put on a headlock or something and work the crowd. Right. And make them boo you or whatever you want. That's what you what your goal is. Fucking throw on a headlock, yeah. a jab in the eye, then do a strut. Uh, fucking yeah. come on. Yeah. Walk around the ring taunting for five minutes, whatever the fuck you want to do. <laughs> I mean, and one of my favorite things to do too was just literally throwing my opponent out of the ring. They try to get back in, I'd throw them right back out of the ring and I'd stay in the ring. And the fans would be like, God damn, just fucking somebody stop him, like get the match going. And just slowing that pace down as a heel, it was so easy. And it was one of my go tos. And I get a lot of heat just for that. Yeah. And there's one thing to be said, you know, it, it, it might be like you said, kind of easy or easier, not easy, but uh, it looks so damn fun. I mean, being bad, just that's, that's fun. You don't really, cause you don't get to walk around in everyday real life, just being an asshole to people and, you know, sticking up middle fingers and all that other stuff. But in the wrestling ring, you can do that. And it, you know, it's like you're living an alternate life or something, you know, an alternate personality, but uh but you, so you've gotten a chance to do both heel and and face. You, which one do you enjoy the most? Looking back, that would be heel or. I did uh, so after I had my retirement match in August. I kind of had this overwhelming feeling that like I just wish that I had one more heel run. Because uh, right. right before I hurt my neck, that was heel. That was heel for years. I was grand champion heel, uh, but my you know. Did people root for you to lose like they came to they wanted to see you lose the belt? Yeah, and that was amazing. Almost two years back to back, month after month, having that opportunity to be in the main event and be like finally like the main event heel. Yeah, uh, that was such a nice experience. And I well, love you're such it. a good talker, dude. Like you could just like you go out to any ring and it just it's crazy what you're able to do out there with a microphone. Yeah. I, I just got a big thrill off of being a heel. So, yeah, if I could have one more run, I would want a heel run. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely looks fun for sure. So, next question. I'll let Mike answer this uh, first as well. Yeah, Michael, answer all of them first. Um, manager or no manager? Which would you prefer? Would you like to have a manager at ringside with you, cutting promos with you? Or do you think that you would have enjoyed kind of being the lone guy out there? As much as I would love to be the lone guy out there, I'm honest with myself to know that when I'm out in front of a crowd of people, and I proved this, that I came to one indie show of yours, a couple, I think, but uh, came to, oh, two. Yeah, so I went to one indie show and did, did something, a segment with you. And I just had... I lacked total charisma. Like I just, I was not able to capture the crowd. And if it wasn't for you, the segment would have been dead in the water. Luckily you, uh, you were able to, to save it from your end at least. So as much as I'd like to be the solo guy, I know that that's not my strong suit. It's not a skill set I possess. 
So I would have to go with a manager. I'd need a mouthpiece, somebody to go out there and really sell me. And then I would be the, you know, the athletic, you know, guy in the ring. I know it doesn't look like it, but I might say if I was, it's a hypothetical, right? If I was a big, there's big show though. He's, 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 a, he's a wrestler. He's a big guy. So would, would it be fair to say that you're, what is the word I'm looking for? What does it mean whenever you're like not a naturally outgoing person? What does that mean? Well, you're an introvert. Yeah. Are you an introvert? Oh yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. I do not have the gift of gab. I can do this like here with you, just chatting with you, but uh, standing in front of the crowd um, in a ring with a microphone, like I just shrivel up inside. So, so what made you agree to do that with me? You were 17 years old and you got on the microphone in front of like, I think there was 300 people in the crowd that night. What made you kind of jump off the edge there? Well, you have to uh, think about it from my standpoint is I was a wrestling fan all that time. So in my head, I didn't know how bad I was going to be. I like had this image of myself that I was going to go out there and just be a fucking natural and just have the crowd eating out the palm of my hands. And it, it was just going to work out. But then when I did it, it just made me have so much more respect for you, for the, for the rest of the people that do do it and do it well, because I realized very quickly, Lesson 101, you can't just go out there and just pretend, you know, you, you got to know what you're doing when you're out there. You can't just just assume that you're just going to be able to make it any make anything work. So that's what that's the lesson I learned that day is I had to be knocked down a few pegs. Way too cocky. Still, I know I said it on the previous episode in season one, but I'll say it again right here, right now. I'm just so glad that you got that experience because oh, dude, so many, yeah, it was so fun. Like one fans that don't get to do that, man. They they then that was cool. I can always look back on that and say, you know, I have to have a little moment. Did the moment kind of suck? Yeah, but it was fun. <laughs> no, I mean, hey, it, it takes two to tango, and like you said, you know, whenever I got on the mic, the crowd got up. Oh yeah, and, for sure. You know, if you would have done that angle with somebody else and it was just crickets the whole time, you might yeah. be saying something different right now. Oh yeah, yeah, it wouldn't have been as memorable at all. Yeah, it's it's you that saved that thing for sure. Yeah, I just remember. <laughs> Yeah, I just uh, cringe moment for myself, but still fun at the same time. Well, I'll go and answer it. Manager or no manager. I'd yeah. actually prefer a manager. Of course, wow. I can talk. That's interesting. I can, I can totally talk. I can surprise me. I just like that dynamic. I mean, Hulk Hogan had Jimmy Hart. He didn't fucking need Jimmy Hart. Yeah, Hulk Hogan's perfectly fine on his own. Um, I'm trying to think of another good example of somebody who did not need a manager. CM Punk and Paul Heyman. Yeah. CM Punk didn't need any, any manager, but, but it worked. Exactly. And even, like, uh, even Roman and Paul Heyman now, I mean, Roman doesn't need a, need a, well, now to be fair though, Roman has gotten a lot better on the mic. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't always like that for sure. Even Cena said, he's like, maybe I'll teach you how to cut a promo one day. And I was like, <gasps> Could you imagine being called out like that in front of millions of people? And knowing wanted, knowing yeah. that the machine wants to make you the next guy, and then he says yeah. that. I think that was John Cena's way of like challenging him, though, and saying, dude, do better. Like, yeah. you need to do better. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I, That's interesting, I, though. You would, you would prefer a manager. That's, I would have not guessed that about you. Well, uh, whenever I look back, uh, you know, rest in peace, Mike Skills. Um, Mike Skills, I had Mike Skills with me for so many of my ventures in wrestling. And this dude could cut a promo like nobody's business. But 
I've had managers who couldn't cut promos for shit that were, that were with me in my head. I like to get my opponent over, but I also like to see if I can get my manager over. And that was kind of a high for me. Let me see if I can get, you know, Hey, another great example. We got Jake Davis in the chat, ravishing Rick rude and Bobby Heenan. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. Rick rude could talk all day. You sweat hogs. Like he could just, you know, go all in for sure. Good example. You know, managers are also cool because there's things that you can do that you can't do when you're solo. They could, they, they could slide in a weapon or like slide in something or stand up on the apron and distract your opponent or something. So there's always some things you could do there. Yes. And the old, you know, the deeper I got into the business, I wanted to tell those different kinds of stories. You know, let me tell as many different stories as I can yeah. while I can. Okay. Next question. Uh, this actually was a question sent in that I don't think you'll be able to answer. We'll see. Um, what was it like wrestling in 2007? <laughs> what was it like? Well, let me tell you, Travis, it was quite, uh, quite amazing. You know, I didn't wrestle in 2007, but I can, I can speak, I can speak to one thing. Cause you, you, uh, helped me take some bumps. My first and only bumps that I've ever taken in a wrestling ring. That was in 07. That was in 07, coincidentally, yeah. And uh, I remember thinking, so like, again, as a fan, you just have like this idea in your head. You're just like, I used to backyard wrestle on the trampoline, like in the yard a little bit. Like, I could do this, no problem. Dude, when you actually get in there and try to do some of this shit, you just changes your perspective on the whole thing. I remember thinking, oh, bumps, easy. That's, that's the easiest thing in wrestling. I could do that. First time I fall down on my back, First of all, I was even scared to do it to begin with. You had to get down on your hands and knees and like get uh, in a way where I could like fall back the proper way or whatever. But the first time I actually land on my back, smack my head right on the wood. Like, I mean, smack it. And I'm just feeling my head just like a pounding headache start forming. And then I'm like, okay, okay. And then I think you, I remember you saying like tuck your chin or something like that. Or, you know, you got to start tucking your chin, Mike. Tuck Fuck. your chin. And so I got up to do it again. Boom. Smacked my head again. <laughs> I think I tried it one more time and I smacked my head again. And I was just like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good with those being my first and only bumps. So, yeah, that was my experience as a wrestler in 2007. Very briefly. Once you, once you get in the ring for the first time and you feel how actually like solid it is underneath. Yeah, your it feet. is not forgiving. If you guys think it's like padded up and shit like that, there's a very thin layer of pad on a lot of those rings, but it is thin and you feel everything. Yeah. My head was pounding. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But um, yeah, I mean, wrestling in 2007, like, what can I really say? Um, I wrestled a lot of shows with like Nikolai Volkov and Axel Rotten. Uh, Axel Rotten was in ba uh, was in Baltimore. So it was a and how many years were you in the business at that point? A, one. One. Okay. First year. I mean, Batista was the heavyweight champion on SmackDown. Um, Nikolai Volkov also lived in Baltimore. So I was on tons of shows with him. I think 2007 was, cool, was 2007 was also the year I did the show with Chris Jericho. So oh wow, that's when that happened. That was really did you get cool. to speak to Jericho. You know it's fucked up, man. Because every last person on MySpace the next day had a picture, fucking arm over <sighs> Jericho, like oh I fucking met Chris Jericho. 
And brother, I'm telling you, my trainers told me from day one, they're like, if, if you find yourself in the locker room with a name, do not mark out. And I never, I'd never even tried to meet Jericho. I was so very, you were the only one who didn't mark out. It seemed. <laughs> oh yeah. Literally, literally the only one. Um, that sucks. No, I wish I would have taken a picture with Jericho because those same trainers uh, took, they, they'll post pictures now on their Facebooks uh, of like, hey, this is me with this fucking guy, the the barbarian from 06 or something. And I'm like, God damn it. I was on that same show. Why didn't I take a picture with him? Yeah, I'm surprised Jericho even worked in an indie event. That's crazy. But that reminds me of uh, when I worked at the movie theater in 2008 and I had just finished my shift and not 10 or 15 minutes later, I get a message, a text message from my coworker saying, dude, I wish you would have stayed a little longer. Edge and Christian just came in from the WWE live event and they came to see a movie and I got to serve them popcorn. And I was like, fuck you. Fuck you. Whoa. So, yeah. How cool is that? Edge and you Christian. You never told me that story. That's bad. Yeah. Ass. Yeah. I just, I, I just missed them like 10 or 15 meters. If I had just stuck around because usually I would stick around and chat with my coworkers for a little bit that particular day. I just decided not to. And that's the one day I could have at least seen them, you know, in person, but whatever. Damn. Yeah. I think the only time I've ever been starstruck uh, by like sharing a locker room with somebody was uh, Jeff Jarrett. Um, 2014, I worked a show with him in Harrisburg and man, I was just sitting at gorilla. They had a TV set up in the back and I was watching the TV and I just felt the hair stick up on my neck. I felt an energy enter the room. I heard a chair pull up next to me. Jeff Jarrett fucking sits down right Dude, next to me. That's crazy. What was your first thought? I, I you was shocked. Like, I, I just started talking to myself in my head. I was like, brother, you've been in the business eight years. Fucking act like it. You know, talk to him like he's one of your fucking. Act uh, like it. Get it together. You, you know, don't don't freak out, brother. <laughs> um do you think and, it's okay to freak out maybe a little bit though? Like, I'm sure it's okay. Not freak out, but like, I'm sure they appreciate that you're a fan. Like, you know, if you were to, to express that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, um, yeah. If somebody really like spoke to you and their work did absolutely tell them. Cause they're a human being just like you. Yeah. Uh, I didn't tell Jared how much he meant to me that night, but I did. I looked over at him. I said, Hey brother, my name's Travis. I shook his hand. And the matches were, I think the first match was already happening. And I said, Jeff, if you see anything happening in this match, like any tidbits or anything you like, you want to break down, like, like I, I would love to hear your critiques or anything like that. And then he proceeded to shit on the match that was happening, like completely shit. on. <laughs> That's awesome. He's That's like, probably not what you were expecting. He's like, the arm ringer looks terrible. That transition looked like shit. And, and like, just it's like wondering. you guys look like a bunch of garters out there. Well, to, to be fair, there was guys who weren't very good that was yeah. in the ring. And they were known for not being good. So, but anyway. Very interesting. <laughs> um, okay. why, do these guys, why do these guys go to these types of events? They're just paid really well to do to come. Is that what it is? Like, uh, or do they enjoy the experience? What What is it for them? Well, this was a super show. There was a company gotcha. called the Ultimate Wrestling Experience, and they ran shows in Harrisburg. Uh, uh, Jarrett wasn't the only guy there. Uh, Karen was there as well. Uh, I believe Foley was also booked that night. There was a couple wow. stars. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. 
yeah, there was a couple stars. Um, I and I had never really worked with the with this company before, and it's one of the only times that I really like politicked to get onto a show. I literally did it so I could try to rub el- elbows with Jeff Jarrett. That's awesome, and it worked out. So that's good. That's good. And they booked me again after that, so it didn't. You know, yeah, it wasn't for nothing. I I came and did my job, and I did it well. But uh, okay, next question in the mailbag strangest place a locker room was can you imagine a like a fucking strange place that changed for your match yeah i bet that you probably have been in some strange ones over the years well i can't really think of like a really super outlandish place that it, you know that the boys had to change in but i did whenever i got this question in the mailbag uh it did make me think of this I was 19 years old and I didn't have an ID like a driver's license, state issued ID. I didn't have an ID at all um, for whatever reason. Why and not? I just, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't. I just didn't. I just didn't. Uh, and I lived for years without having an actual ID. Uh, well, I was a part of a ring crew at this time and they ended up getting a show booked on a Navy base in uh, DC or it might've been an army base. Either way, it was some kind of military facility that you fucking had to have an ID to get on to the base. <laughs> yeah. To like prove your identity and stuff and keep track of who's there and stuff. Yeah. I didn't get my driver's license till I was 25. So I was with the ring crew in the ring truck and stuff. And we pulled up to the gates and they were like, we need to see everybody's ID. And, you know, one by one, serious. they're looking at each Were you ID. sweating bullets at that point? You're like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. I, I, I can't believe I didn't think about this before the before heading up there. Like, and I looked at the guy who was like the owner of the whole deal. And I was like, dude, what the fuck are we going to do? Like, I don't have my ID. And he was like, he was like, let's just wait and see what they say. Let's just wait and see what they say. And they took one look at me, you know, and they're like, this guy looks harmless. Um, We're just going to take his, take his word for it. They had a woman, uh, some kind of an officer, a woman officer uh, be with me the whole time I was there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they were, uh, you might've looked harmless, but they weren't taking any chances. It seems. Yeah. And she, and she was a bitch. Well, I okay. She was just doing Whoa. her job. She was just doing her <laughs> job, a... but she was like fucking she was giving just following me, like, her orders. She was not willing to joke. She was not willing to have her conversation. She, it was yeah. all business to her. Wow. And yeah, and, yeah, she and had, I've she always, had a job to do. I've always been Travis Dufour. I've always wanted to crack a joke. And she was not laughing at anything I was saying. Um, but uh, but either way, um, it comes time for me to change to actually get changed for the match. And I asked yeah. her, I was like, So are you are you staying for for this next part? And she was like, What do you mean? I was like, I have to get in my tights. And she was like, I'll, I'll look away for a moment. Not long, though. She was like, get changed quick. <laughs> I'll look away for a moment. Jeez, it's like prison. So that's one of my claims to fame. I got to. She's like, no, I'm not looking away. Change. <laughs> <laughs> she turned on some like fucking slow jams music. I was like, I'm not doing this in slow motion for you. 
Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway. Minutes until we get old. old Mike show. 15 more minutes. Got a couple more questions to get through. Next question. Are bar shows common? Um, Mike, do you, is there uh you know a little bit about the independent wrestling scene out in like Akron, Ohio, Youngstown, yeah. like that? I've area. actually been to a bar show, a wrestling uh okay. show at a bar in Barberton, Ohio. So yeah, I'm familiar with it. Was that like a violent or was that a little bit of a nope. violent show? No. Well, uh, I mean the the wrestling that happened or yeah. no, that particular show was not that I remember. No, it seemed pretty low key. Um there was a pretty violent one that I went to. It was actually the uh, one that uh, Seth Rollins, formerly Tyler Black and Johnny Gargano was on. That one was a very, very oddly violent show. Like I was actually quite surprised how violent it was. Just like, you know, all kinds of stuff. They had all kinds of weapons and stuff. I don't remember where that you, was not at a bar, though. I don't remember where that was at. Do you Some remember if hall. Seth Rollins got violent? No, he was not. He did not fuck around in that match in those matches. That was some <laughs> that was other guys. He didn't fuck around. <laughs> no, he didn't fuck around. Nice. No, it was. I don't remember him being in any of those matches, any of the hardcore matches. Nice. Yeah. yeah um, so the bar shows are fun, though, because you can the drinks right there. The bar's open. Just grab some drinks. Uh, the first outside place that I got booked at after I like left my wrestling school was at a bar. It was at a place that ran monthly bar shows, and that was where I did a death match, the only death match I ever did. Um, I wouldn't say that they're common, but I wouldn't say that they're uncommon. If that makes sense. They're out there. Yeah. There's a place to this day out in Martinsburg. There's only one spot that I know of. That's a bar that has wrestling. Uh, every it's gotta be month. a decent sized bar though. I mean, you got, if you got to fit a wrestling ring and some fans and a small little entrance, I mean, that's gotta, gotta be a decent sized bar. It's typically outside events which is a gamble if it rains you're fucked believe it or not the bar wrestling show that i was at the the wrestling was inside it was big enough that it was inside yeah so it was uh probably unusual but it was still cool uh, the place i did the death match at too that was an inside the bar occasion as well you don't strike me as a death match guy what was that experience like briefly should again, i know a wrestler Sorry, are, are we going in and out? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Are we good? Yep, right now, yep. I think I think we're good until the next spike. Uh, what should a wrestler focus on uh, when they're first going to wrestling school? What would you say, Mike? I mean, for uh, my opinion, based on no knowledge whatsoever, would be the, the, the basics. I mean, that would be learning how to bump properly, but you, you would have a way better answer than me just because I, I fucked that up and I... I overlooked. I thought the basics would be way simpler than they actually were. So my guess would be like trying to really hone in on those basics. But go ahead. What, what as a no. as a wrestler though? What is the real answer? No, that's that's perfect. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. okay. Um, I think that a common mistake I saw, like a good bit, was having a preconceived notion. What was having some kind of fantasy world in your head of, of, of what you think it's going to be. And whenever yeah. it turns out not being that way, you're fucking going to your car and not coming back. Yeah. yeah. For me, I thought so like I uh, completely just underestimated something as simple as running the ropes. I ran the ropes and the first time I did it, my back hurt like from hitting the like. <laughs> 
Like you just don't, you just don't like as a fan, you don't think about these kinds of things. You just see wrestlers running the ropes and it just in your mind, it kind of seems easy. Oh, they fall on their backs and take a bump. Oh, that looked easy. Dude, none of that stuff's easy. Like those, those things are like hard. Like, so I can't even imagine the rest. So I understand what you mean. I mean, and whenever you see people like the undertaker fucking throw their body at the ropes, like, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely uh, get rid of that preconceived notion. Uh, anything that you think you know about pro wrestling, wipe yep. it. It's gone. You don't you're, know. You're yep. starting from scratch, from absolute scratch, day one. So that's my best advice. Don't fucking come in with any kind of preconceived notion. Open mind and and let your trainer mold you. So Yeah. Unless be, you have a shit Be open shit to trainer. advice, I'm sure. Because there's a lot of guys that are even like the guys in like, you know, AEW and elsewhere that just say they don't need advice. Like, I, I feel like the day that you say that you don't need advice anymore is the day that you're kind of dead in the water. Like, yeah, like I'm not a wrestler. I'm a designer. But like even in my career or any career, if you stop taking advice, stop learning, you're done. Like, you're done. Hang up the boots, kid. You're never going to work in this town again. Yeah. Uh, okay, next question we got here in the mailbag. Uh, which era of wrestling had the best wrestling? Oh, it's gonna be very subjective. Uh, a lot of people, it would, is. yeah. So, you're asking me first, yeah, go for which it. Which era had the best wrestling? So, I'm just gonna go with I love the ruthless aggression era, and that, that's not to say that it's the best wrestling overall, but for me as a fan, it was because that's when I started getting into it, like seriously getting into it. A uh, little bit right before the ruthless aggression, but I missed the Attitude Era. So the only thing I saw of the Attitude Era was just in documentaries and obviously rewatching stuff on the WWE Network and that kind of thing. So yeah, like the 2002 through 2006, I guess, or whatever that ruthless aggression era was, that would probably be it for me. Nice, very nice. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm just gonna go simple here. The 80s style of wrestling that was mainly what I studied whenever I was an active wrestler. Whenever they talk about studying tape, uh, if, if it wasn't from the 80s, I more than likely wasn't watching it. So, yeah, 80s are good too. Easily, I just, the best. I just didn't watch too much. Easily the best. And uh, folks, very shortly we will have Mike Iser on the show. We have one more question from the mailbag, and then old Mike. Iser, uh, who spent a number of years as a corrections officer, he will be on the Travis Dupour show. So if you think that this was false advertising, think again. He's coming. I'm really uh, disappointed I'm going to miss that part, too, because it sounds like it's going to be a fun one. I definitely will be listening in. I'm sure he's got lots of cool stories, interesting stories to tell. So yeah. faux show. And for the last uh, uh, mailbag question, is, is there any childhood uh, memories of, of your fandom that really stick out for you. If you have to think of something, I have something. Yeah, I have to think of something for sure. So, but the question is a, a, a memory from wrestling that really stands out. Yeah. Yeah. That's a uh, childhood wrestling memory that sticks out. That's you know, it, it's not specific. So I don't know if this is a, even a, a, if it's a bad answer or not. But one of the things that stands out to me the most is just Brock Lesnar's 2002 to 2004 reign of terror. Like he just was unstoppable then. Like I just he was hands down probably one of my favorites, if not the favorite at that point in time. So uh, really anything he was doing from his match from his matches with Big Show and, and Undertaker, uh, his mouthpiece, Paul Heyman, you know, just 
love the whole thing. I remember being very disappointed when he left at WrestleMania 20 at 20. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, really anything he was doing during that time just so really stands it, out for me. Whenever he beat the fuck out of the Hardy boys at the same time, you were all about it. Yeah. Yeah. From the moment he showed up and just started beating the crap out of dudes like I was behind Brock Lesnar. That's so, yeah. cool. That's kind of general because I'm sure you were looking for a very specific moment, but that's that's what came to my mind first. Ah, hey, uh, that's a very it's a very broad question. Um, so uh, I actually have two stories I want to tell here uh, before sure. we get Mike Eiser on. Um, this is kind of embarrassing. Uh, whenever I was like a, like a kid, kid, like nine, ten years old, after we would get a pay-per-view, I once the pay-per-view was done, I would go upstairs. We lived in a townhouse, you know, townhouse. There's lots of neighbors. I'd go up to my room, open the window and fucking scream out the results of the pay-per-view. Oh, uh, for anybody spoil- who missed it. <laughs> oh, I thought you were in like spoiler for people, but you're do you're doing a service for people. <laughs> what? I was a uh, Midian fucking lost to Kane. And I mean, I thought like, you were pulling a WCW. You're like, well, mankind won the title tonight. So there's no reason to tune into that. <laughs> like that's good. shit. No need to change the channel. Uh, so that, you know, that's a little embarrassing. I can't believe I fucking did that. Uh, but um, the only other story I really remember is uh, I was living in an apartment building. Once again, I was like maybe 11 or 12 at this point, this kid that lived upstairs, he was really troubled. Um, he was like three years younger than me. So like eight, nine years old. No shit. Was one of the biggest potheads I've ever met in my life. Um, and he would smoke gratuitous amounts of weed and then like run around the neighborhood and stuff. And like, and I just remember his dad bought him a Smackdown one know your role on the playstation you remember that game oh i still i still have it i literally just found it the other day i have all those original smackdown games and that was really the first wrestling video game that i really fell in love with you know i was around for the n64 games the no mercy wrestlemania 2000 and all that but uh that was really the first game that i really sunk my teeth in like fell in love with and i just remember smelling like stale beer and i didn't know it was weed but i would smell weed in this kid's house um, and I would just play this game with them. Good memories. Yeah, those yeah. games were awesome. That that's when video games were like really. Oh, they're good now, I guess. But I just love no, that. They're not good now. Games. They need to fix them. They need to fix. Them. Yeah, some. I mean, some of them aren't as great. And certain. I mean, the graphics are better. That's for damn sure. But in a lot of ways, they aren't as good. Well, Mike, uh, do you have any final words before we let you go and bring on old Mike Iser? No, or it's it's fun, man. Hello to Mike or. Yeah, bring him on. Bring him on. Okay. All right, Mike, I hope that you're ready for this. Uh, he is in right now. Um, I want everybody round of applause, a warm welcome to Mike Iser. Nice to see you, Mike. Thanks, fellas. What's going on, Glad Mike? I can make it. How are you, Mike? Nice to meet you, brother. Yeah, nice to meet you. Uh, unfortunately, I'm dipping out. I'm really sad about that, too. I can't because I a lot of work to do today but uh really uh i'm gonna be listening in and cool gonna be sad that i'll missed out and asking you about some of your correctional stories and that kind of stuff so but i'm just gonna hang up on myself goodbye all right and ladies and gentlemen that was mike yatsko and now mike Iser. what do you prefer mike or michael mike's fine doesn't matter to me hell yeah so fuck let's just jump right into it um 
what at what age did you even start being a corrections officer? Uh, that would have been 2011. So I would have been, we got to do math now, like 25. Yeah. Wow. What what puts a 25 year old in that line of work? What were you doing before that? Necessity. <laughs> um, so when I met my wife, I was actually managing a Ruby Tuesdays. Um, and for anybody in the restaurant business, you know that those hours can be not fun hours, bad times of the day. I was working anywhere from like 60 to 70 hours a week. And we found out we were having our first kid. So I was like, hey, there's no way I'm doing this. I'm going to be a dad. I'm not just going to be the guy that says hi and bye every day. Um, so I started working at a sporting goods store. Um, that didn't pay very well. And we found out we were having our second child. Um, so I knew right away I had to do something that you know had good benefits. Um, I could retire after 20 years, move on to the next phase of life. Uh, so that, that was the driving factor, was just finding something that I could financially support my family. Um, but I'm not going to lie, the day I hit submit on that application, I had no idea what, what I was in for at all. So uh, how did you even hear about it? you looking in the classifieds in the newspaper? you have a friend working there? Um, I had some family members that worked there. Um, I knew that they did pretty well for themselves for the most part. Um, I mean, it's not a glamorous job. It's not a, a very high paying job, but for our area, it was about as good as it got. Um, and there was a, uh, a, a like a ma major recruitment going on. My wife had heard about it and she said, Hey, I know you're looking for something that, you know, is going to pr provide better for the family. Um, so she put, she turned me on to that. So this is I, know that, <laughs> I know that my brother's best friend growing up ended up being a corrections officer down in my neck of the woods. And okay. it, it, well, it was kind of scary, man, because he did that for a couple years. Uh, but then I think he had left that job maybe a year or two later. He got in trouble himself and went to yeah. jail. And that's, oh, you could have a target on your back. Am I wrong? Massive. Yeah. Most of the time, anytime a correction officer or police officer, uh, somebody at any, any level of law enforcement, they usually end up on something called protective custody uh, for that reason. Um, a lot of people don't think inmates have the ability to get information about you um anymore especially now a lot of inmates have access to the internet um it is restricted but at the same time i mean they can do a google search just like you or i could and find information out but uh years and years ago when i first started a lot of times they would write home and they would write home to a girlfriend a wife a mom dad cousin um or you know even a fellow gang member and say hey look up this guy give me some information um and then that's how especially on other inmates as well uh, so if they wanted to verify that you were a gang member on the streets before you got to jail um, or in that situation, they would say, hey, do some research. Was this guy ever hired as, as a correctional officer? And yeah, massive target. Yeah. So whenever these inmates are writing letters, is there some kind of a filtering system? Are you seeing yeah. any of the letters? Are they all uh, just fucking going out? There, there is a mail department. Um, they're looking more for like contraband. So they're looking for more like drugs, uh, weapons that happened, cell phones, uh, but drugs is the big one. Uh, but the, uh, in order to look at an inmate's uh, mail or anything coming and going, a lot of times you have to have a reason um, because they still have an expected level of privacy, uh, just like you or I do as a citizen. Sometimes a lot of officers will say they get more uh the, the treatment for an inmate is better in an in a institution like that than it is even for the officers working there, which is very true. 
um, for unfortunate reasons as well. Uh, but there is a mail department that will go through mail. Um, I spent a little bit of time in the gang intel department, which uh, I, I, really all I did was listen to phone calls or read mail. Um, and a lot of times it's in code. So unless you have somebody who knows what they, how to break that code, it may just sound like nonsense. Uh, but yeah, there are people that, that do go through the mail. Um, but unfortunately, that stuff slips through all the time. They can't catch it all. Uh, did you ever watch uh, MSNBC Lockup? Uh, I'll be honest with you, I did when I was working at the jail. Um, and we can get into this later, but I actually got injured. That's why I'm not there anymore. I got a medical retirement. Um, so that, that's a good story we could touch on too. Um, but unfortunately, when, when I left, my mental health took a massive hit. Um, my wife told me for a few years and even family members that saw a pretty drastic change in how I carried myself, um, even when I wasn't at work. Um, a lot of times that stuff came home with you. And I, it, it was one thing I didn't want to do, but it just did. Like it just weighs on you. Um, so I, anytime that would come on TV, you know, my wife loves that stuff. She loves true crime documentaries, you know, the normal, you know, you guys would probably get along great. Uh, <laughs> uh, but unfortunately she would like to watch this stuff. And I, at the time I could watch it, but after I, I just couldn't, um, it brought back memories that, you know, made it hard to watch. Even now I don't I try to, at least the stuff that involves prison, I really don't watch much of it. Uh, but you're okay on this episode, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, I just remember watching the hell out of Lockup. Um, I, so not going too deep into that, um, is it pretty accurate to what's... Um, I can't really attest to that because Lockup was mainly about, if I remember correctly, wasn't that about more of like a detention center? Like they would bring people in after they got arrested and like processing it. Am I right on that one? Uh, I mean, I saw like a lot of like lifers and stuff. I guess some of the episodes I saw were like lifers. Yeah. um, I I would say it was fairly accurate anymore with reality TV. Unfortunately, the the chances of it being not scripted, not, you know, a little bit of like pizzazz thrown in there to make something seem a little cooler. Um, I, from what I watched, I'd say it was fairly accurate. Um, the, the show 60 Days In, those kind of shows, I've seen those a few times. Those seem a little little odd to me. Um, but probably my favorite show when I would watch shows like that was called Jail. And uh, it was more of the detention center side of things. And I never worked in one of those. So, uh, like you said, it was a lot of lifers. It was a lot of guys with more than a year and a day. Um, usually, if you get sentenced for less than that, you're in a, deten- a detention center. Um, and I never worked in one of those. But I've heard stories from guys there, too, that... It's a completely different ball game. Uh, do you feel comfortable saying what you worked in? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What was it? Uh, so when I first got hired, unfortunately, I got hired in Hagerstown, and I live in Cumberland. Um, so there was no we have we have two jails here. We have Western Correctional Institution and North Branch Correctional Institution in Cumberland. Um, both of those were not hiring directly from the street. Uh, there was a lot of reasons for that. Um, they still needed staff, but at the same time, they're, I don't want to say they're a harder prison to work in than any other in the state, but they had a lot of issues. Um, there wasn't as much turnover, but they also at the time didn't have a hiring department. So in order to get hired, you had to start in Hagerstown. Um, you had to wait at least a year before you could transfer or even request a transfer. Um, so I actually started at MCIH, which is uh, Maryland Correctional Institution in Hagerstown. Um, they have like a conglomerate of three jails right there. Um, and that was actually, that's one of the, well, at the time, 
when they closed the cut, which was uh, if you've ever seen like Shawshank or any of the old prison movies where it's just like bars and a, a two foot uh, walkway in front of the, the cells. That's what that place was. Uh, probably one of the most dangerous prisons of the, in the country at the time. Because um, you can only imagine it make you reach out, stab you, punch you, throw whatever they want on you. Um, there's no physical door. Uh, so that place got shut down. It's now a housing development. People actually live in it, <laughs> which wow. is pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. They tore most of it down, but part of it stayed open as like a like an apartment complex, pretty much. Um, but yeah, so I worked at MCIH. It was actually built by inmate labor. Uh, I can't remember the exact time, like early 1900s, if I if I remember correctly. Mm. Uh, but inmates would were mining the rocks right there, uh, very close to Antietam Battlefield. So uh, if you've ever been there or seen pictures of that place, I mean, it's covered in, in just limestone and different kinds of sandstone and stuff like that. So that prison, if you look up pictures of it, it actually looks like it was just built out of rock. And it, for, for the most part, the majority of the prison was. Um, it's a pretty cool looking place. Very, very old. Uh, a lot of stories about hearing things that uh that wasn't an inmate kind of thing um you go to a dark place at night where you have to go do like security rounds and you would hear some stuff when no one else was there uh pretty pretty wild stuff so whenever you first got this job and you're kind of learning it and you're it's your first days and everything was there a part of you that was like fuck i don't know if i'm going to be able to do this or <laughs> was you gung-ho like all right uh uh, the driving factor was always to support my family. Um, so just like any other job, uh, there's jo other jobs out there that are just as dangerous, just as, uh, you know, I look at truck drivers. I have a lot of respect for truck drivers for what they do. They're never home. Um, we both know how people drive, especially in our area, uh, you know, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, we got some crazy people out there. Um, so I respect those guys. And I looked at it kind of the same way. I had to compartmentalize it um, that, this wasn't, I didn't want it to become a lifestyle, although it almost has to become one. Um, but at the same time, what, what kept me going on the days where I was like, Nope, I don't want to be here. I can't believe I just saw that. Uh, I, it was my job. I had to continue. Um, but what's, what's nice about that too. And I, I will say, especially for the guys, if, if anybody from Hager sounds watching that I got a chance to work with, um, you know, there's always bad apples, but for the most part, the, the people I work with in Hagerstown, were fantastic people. Um, they took care of me. I mean, of course, there's the the rookie ribs, just like any. You know, we we both we're both in the wrestling business, so you you're the new guy. You're going to get messed with, um, and uh, that kind of toughened me up a little bit. I, I, I like to say, but at the same time, uh, a great group of people to work with. Uh, I knew from day one that you know they had, we had each other's back. Um, if anything went down, you know, downhill. Um, so that, that, that was huge for me as well, making that transition. Uh, cause the first couple, I'd say the first couple months, like it, it's, it's a culture shock, unfortunately. Oh my God. And just, uh, you know, I've never been a part of anything. You know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I know what you've been through with that job and right. everything. I was a security officer at a casino for about two years. Not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> But the camaraderie and having each other's backs, you know, yeah. like if something happened in the casino, because there was a time where there was a group of guys who was money laundering and we had and they were like thugs. They right. were like part of a gang. So it's like we had to like surveil them and follow them and and like do like some shit. And and if you're not a team, 
that dude, you you could buckle. You could th- that yeah. could fuck everything up. Somebody could get hurt. Yeah, it only takes one person. Yeah. So if, if we knew, uh, just for example, if we had to do a cell extraction, um, your sergeant would usually pick who usually was about five people who would go into that cell to do the extraction. Um, and he would pick the five people he wanted to go in. Um, and a lot of times he would make sure those five people were either people who not necessarily got along, but five people that he knew he could trust not to do anything stupid. Um, because, uh, I mean, just no different than, than being on the street. There's, there's rules, there's laws. Um, everybody has rights, no matter if you're in prison or not. Um, and like I said before, uh, a lot of us as officers didn't feel like we had as many rights as the inmates did. Um, and unfortunately, that's it's the truth. Um, a lot of times when an inmate would make a mistake, yeah, they would get in trouble for it. But our job was on the line. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the pressure, the pressure balance was completely different. Um, but yeah, so a lot of times you would make sure those guys that you were involved with you, you could trust, you knew they weren't going to hem you up in something stupid. Um, and then also weren't going to make the situation worse than it was. And unfortunately that happens a lot, uh, especially with younger officers, um, that come in. Uh, and I had a couple instances myself that uh, I don't want to get too far into, uh, but, but where you do something stupid, you let your adrenaline and emotions get the best of you. Um, you know, my wife jokes with me all the time, my blood guts, you know, vomit, that stuff doesn't bother me. But like human feces, absolutely, like it gags me. And unfortunately, in prison, like that's one of their favorite things to do is, you know, put it in a water bottle, you know, hit you with it when you're not paying attention. And there was an incident where that happened to me. And uh, if it wasn't for other people around, I don't know what I would have done because I, I was very, very irritated. Like probably the maddest I've ever been in my life. So if it wasn't, wouldn't have been for other people saying, "Hey, we got you. We'll take care of it." you need to go get a shower, (laughs) that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's gross. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, walking in the zoo with my daughter and, uh, and, uh, uh, one of the animals like spit in my face and I got pretty pissed off. I could punch a fucking animal (laughs) in the face. I can only imagine if it was. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately. And it was never, it was never an accident. That's, that's anything that happens in prison usually isn't an accident. If somebody's doing something, it's on purpose. So so uh before you got a chance to like work with the really violent uh criminals and stuff like that were you kind of eased into it you were kind of working with uh petty petty crimes and stuff like that or were you fucking thrown right into the fire uh just like wrestling we'll use another one uh once your training's done once your promoter thinks you're safe you're gonna go out and have a match and it's never uh, I remember my first match. I'm not going to put him out there, uh, but it was a guy that it was it was going to test me um, because I don't know that he was 100% ready. I definitely wasn't. Um, that was actually for Shane Shadows with CPW. He gave me my first chance, um, and uh, it, it was it was a, for my first match. I was happy with it, but at the same time, Shane didn't he he didn't coddle me. Uh, he said, "Hey, this is you know you're the opening match of the cart." He's like, "You're you're match one. Go set the tone." Uh, and it's the same way in the jail. Uh, you know, I walked in, you have a day where they kind of give you a tour, you do some paperwork, uh, you, you get, uh, you know, find out where keys are, where equipment is. Um, and then the second day I walked in and they said, Hey, you're on a- tier a one. Um, I did have a, a training officer with me. Um, you know, he was a great guy. Uh, you know, I learned a lot from him. I got lucky with him. Um, he, uh, he really took care of me, showed me the ropes, taught me, 
hey, that inmate definitely just tried to take advantage of you, and I, I completely missed it. Um, and uh, I learned a lot from him through through the process. So uh, that I got lucky in that aspect. He was also like six four and like two hundred ninety pounds. So that that also made me feel pretty comfortable. That helps. Uh, so shout shout out to Officer Harper. He's a federal officer now. Um, but uh, you know him and I we're we're still very very close friends. Uh, luckily, he lives close to where I live. Uh, I don't want to give his, too much of his, his information out since he's still active. Um, but he uh, you know he was he was a huge help to me. Um, and uh, yeah, but it was you know here's your book. You know, take tier count. You know, you're opening doors. You're you got the keys. You're in charge day one. Um, and he kind of sat back and watched how I interacted. Um, but yeah, first first couple months in was uh, I think the FTO process is three months or six months. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but it was uh, it's quite the ride. I feel like this does make a difference. Uh, were you on day shift or night shift? So when I first started, I was on day shift. Um, I don't know if that's normal practice still, uh, but there was uh, my academy class, I think had about 35 officers in it. We went to three different jails. Uh, so we went through, I think, six, 12 weeks or 16 weeks of, uh, of like, even before we were in the jail of like an academy, you take classes, defensive tactics, uh, learn how to use the less than lethal stuff, like the gases, the uh, how to use a baton properly, like just you, you name it, we went over it. Um, also, how things work, how to write a report, all those things. Because most people who go to this job didn't go to college for uh, criminal justice. Some people did, um, but most people did, did not. They were in a fairly similar situation to me. Um, and then, uh, and then you, you, yeah, first, I think I had twelve people in my academy go with me to that that institution. Um, and we were on daylight for about, I'd say four to six months. Um, and then we had the option to either, uh, cause we weren't going to stay there. It all goes off seniority. Uh, there was no way we were staying on daylight. So we had a choice between, uh, the second shift and then overnight. Um, and I knew second shift was going to be terrible cause I'd miss everything at home. So I, I went to night shift and that was <laughs> a completely different story, completely different story. So now, now that you've seen both sides of the coin, which do you prefer? Uh, I work night shift most of my career. Um, daylight has a lot of movement, uh, a lot of like you know, guys going to school, guys going to work. Uh, the institution I was at actually had shops. So they had like a metal shop, an upholstery shop, uh, a meat plant. Um, so that was kind of a cool perk. Every once in a while, you know, the uh, they do a, a sale like where you would be able to buy uh, meat at a very discounted price <laughs> from a prison and you could bring it home. Uh, they did that once or twice, and then uh, that kind of stopped for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, it, that was kind of a cool thing to see. Uh, but I prefer night shift. Things were obviously quieter. Um, it, it was just easier mentally. Uh, but the downside of the night shift is there's not as many officers. So daylight is going to be one of your biggest groups. So, you know, at, at MCI, I think on any given shift, there would have been about 200 officers. Um, and MCI housed about 1,800 inmates when I was there. Uh, oh. So completely outnumbered. Yeah, and so of, the 1800, of the 1,800, would you say that there's an overwhelming amount that are gang members? Or are they just, just everyday uh, people? It's survival in prison. So if you're not in a gang, you're affiliated in a gang. A lot of it's race-based. Um uh, but I, honestly, I didn't see that as much in Hagerstown as I did when I came 
to North Branch, which is a, a maximum security prison. Um, that that was full. That I'd I'd say eighty five percent to ninety percent of that jail were affiliated gang members. Um, MCI, you had any guy? You had anywhere from a guy doing a year and a day for petty theft to you know guys that had thirty years already that were you know you know had, you know maybe committed murder. Um, so and they could be bunked together. They could be in the same bunk. Um, and in Hagerstown, they also had open housing um, because there there was just so many so many inmates so you'd have uh almost like a chicken coop is what i'll kind of describe like a long house and you'd have you know anywhere from 80 to 100 inmates sleeping on bunk beds in an open area um and as an officer you'd walk down do count anything happened you'd have to walk out and, and right in the middle of the place with you know anywhere from you know around 100 inmates just sitting there watching you um so the the head on a swivel thing was constant. Um, and that was one of the hardest things to not bring home. You know, I, I, to this day, I can't sit, not see the door of a restaurant. I can't have my back to a crowd. Um, so that those things still, still kind of weigh on you a little bit. Wow. It's just, yeah. Wow. Very interesting. Uh, now like general population, that, that, that was a thing, right? General pop. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So would you uh, would you be the guard that was sometimes down there with those guys, or just among them? Yeah, when I first started, I was on a tier, and the tier had, if I remember right, 40, 40 cells, um, and there was usually two inmates per cell. Never at that institution, there was never more than that. Um, and then, uh, and again, that could be any anybody from guys serving just a couple years, the guys doing life. Um, you know, you, you ever see those big Folger Adams keys? Those big big copper keys or, or steel keys. Uh, that's what we'd use to unlock, you know, the old school iron iron gates down there. And then you'd have a panel box with switches to open doors. Uh, but I would have to stand at the end of the tier while guys were going to chow, while guys were going into the rec hall, uh, you know, send guys off the, the medical appointments, those kind of things. Yeah, there's, there's unless everybody's locked in, you're, there's almost always inmates around you. Um, it's, you think about it like a, a compared to like a, a hotel um but you think about that front desk clerk i mean everybody's got a password to leave and you know it's her job to make sure the people that are there are the right people um that was the other hard thing is you know unless you really knew who your inmates were and there were so many times guys would move or new inmates would come in you'd really have to get your yourself able to facially recognize them with the name um to make sure that they were in the right place where they were supposed to be um that you didn't have guys in the wrong cell or guys on the wrong tier uh you know that was it happened guys tried to do it all the time for a litany of reasons you could only imagine but so kind of growing up in the in the area and all that now you find yourself working in the jail system in the prison system mm -hmm. uh did you run into people that you knew often all the time all the uh, time yeah so uh the most notable one and i'll leave his name out of it um because he, he is on the street. <laughs> uh, I was only in the, in, at MCI for about a, uh, I'd say a week, two weeks. And I had, uh, walked downstairs. We had, they actually had what they called an annex. It was literally in the basement, uh, wet, damp, cold, terrible environment. Um, so anybody that says, you know, you know, prisons are like a country club or they really take care of you. It's not always true. Uh, this place, like I said, was built in the early 1900s. It was, it was ancient. So I had to go down there and this guy walks up to me and he said, Hey officer, 
I need to go to this place. And he kind of stopped and looked at me. And as I picked my head up, I knew exactly who the guy was. Went to high school with him, graduated with him, played basketball with him in high school, um, you know, shared a bench. Uh, and he looked at me and he goes, hey, man, how are you? And threw out my first name right away. Um, and it was just <laughs> it was just what that moment where I was like, shit, I've, what am I going to do? Like, he'll tell everybody. And he, he did. He told everybody. Um, and you just have to deal with it. And he, he wasn't disrespectful about it. Uh, I never felt scared for my life because of him, um, because I did have a decent relationship with him in school. Uh, he just took a left when I took a right kind of thing. Um, you know, I hope I hope his life's on the straight and narrow because he was a good person at one one point in time. Um, but oh, um, I mean, at, at the end of the day, do you look at the prison system, at, you know, jail, prison as at the end of the day, it should be rehabilitation? Yeah, and unfortunately, that can go by the wayside sometimes. Yeah. Um, recidivism is how many times a person comes back. Um, and that's what makes it difficult because when you're in a, a, a an institution like that and you're in there with guys that are doing life that have that just don't care, that are surviving by, you know, selling drugs, selling cigarettes, cell phones, whatever, um, you know, they're gangbanging. And then, you know, let's say I would get arrested and I have to spend two years in jail. I'd have to survive. And unfortunately, in order to do that, I'd probably have to participate in those things just to get by. Knowing um, what so, you know, Mike, what would you hustle? Oh, oh, man. The the big one when I first started was Spice. That was when it was huge. Um, I, I wouldn't say that would be my <laughs> my choice. Damn. I, I honestly, I, I'd, I'd probably sell some hoons. I'd sell cigarettes. That seemed like a fun job. Uh, <laughs> they called them Lucy's. Uh, <laughs> You go pick oh, yeah. up a Lucy, that'd be a single mm -hmm. cigarette. Um, and the, the currency in, in prison was usually food um, or what uh, a green dot card, which is like a Visa prepaid gift card. Uh, so if you wanted to buy, you know, let's say you wanted an ounce of a weed delivered to, to you, you would, you know, hook somebody up on the street with a green dot card and pay them X amount of dollars. And then it would get smuggled into jail, usually by an officer, a nurse, um, or during a visit. A lot of times that happens during a visit and that's, it's a whole different can of worms. But yeah, yeah, I'd say cigarettes. Yeah. Would would you have to do cavity searches? All the time. Okay, so so you you know, would you find some cigarettes in people? Oh man, I was hoping you weren't gonna ask this question. <laughs> uh so uh when I came to the North Branch, so uh, I spent about two years, two and a half years in Hagerstown transferred to the North Branch. Um when I came up here, I was stuck on through to eleven shift. And I figured if I'm stuck here, I might as well make the best of this. So I joined the TAC team. Um, and the TAC team would do institutional searches. If something went down, we would be like the first line of defense before they'd call in SOG, which is like your elite group of uh, tactical members. Um, plus, the there was more training, uh, camaraderie, those kind of things. Um, and a lot of times we would do hospital trips. Uh, something happened in the jail, somebody gets sick, whatever. We would go in the ambulance with them to the hospital and stay with them. Uh, just like our normal shift, we would just be there. Uh, and I remember one day I came into work uh, towards the end of my career and uh, the, the desk lieutenant was like, hey, you're going to be at the hospital today. Go get your stuff. You know, you're, you're going up. So I went up and they had just taken this inmate in because he went to I think court and he came back with something inside of him. Um, and we had a, a chair they would actually have to sit in before we strip searched him. So anytime you left the institution, we would strip you and check for everything when you came back we would do the same whether it was court whether it was the hospital um that was really about the only two reasons you would leave uh inmate transfers 
Um, so they would sit in this chair and it was a metal detector. It would check toe to toe to forehead if there was anything inside of you. And this went off, you know, the officers took him up. So when I got there, they were like, Hey, this guy's going to have to go into surgery. Luckily I didn't have to go in the surgical suite. Another officer did. Um, but I stood in the observation area because I had a weapon. And if anything went down, I had to, would have to go in. Um, luckily he was knocked out having surgery, but they actually had to remove a mayonnaise jar from his bowels. Uh, and that managed jar was full. I think it had like two cell phones and a couple chargers and some drugs. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Uh, was it a glass mayonnaise jar? No, no. So in, in jail, uh, there's no glass, uh, no metal containers. Everything's in a plastic container or a plastic bag. Um, thinking that those are safe, but I actually, one of the weapons I found one time was actually a trash bag. And it was rolled so tightly and held against the heater, like rolled against the heater until that almost came, became like a piece of hard plastic. Then it was filed down into a, a shank. Um, so the ingenuity of an inmate is just, it's mind blowing sometimes what they come up with. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, uh, and we're going to take a question from the chat today. Uh, sure. Folks, if you're watching, if you're watching, by all means, uh, you know, we'll try to get to your question. I'll uh, answer anything. Yeah. Have you ever feared for your life while on the job? Not outside of the job, Mike, while on the job. I'll answer both of those questions. It's happened both <laughs> times. Uh, we'll start with inside the jail <laughs> or inside an institution um, multiple times. Uh, a lot of times you're outnumbered uh, anywhere you are. So I'll use the chow hall for an example. Um, at, at North Branch, they broke up chow halls into tiers. So one tier of inmates could be anywhere from like... Um, anywhere from 40 to 120 inmates in one chow hall. Um, and there would be two officers inside the chow hall, two upstairs uh, in an observation area. And then you have a bunch of guys outside or floating back and forth. So uh, still that's not, there's, we're not, they're not even numbers. Um, and there was a, a time where an entire chow hall had just exploded into what I would call a miniature riot. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Did um, you see it coming? If it, you could feel the tension in the air, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's uh, just like any any other profession, you start to to kind of um, develop a sixth sense as the okay, today's going to be weird. Um, my wife actually, it's it's kind of crazy. Uh, about a week or so before I got hurt, she started to have this feeling that uh, you know I got to keep my phone next to me. I'm worried about him, and sure enough, I ended up getting injured uh, not long after that. So like even she was developing those like maybe she saw a difference in my demeanor because at the time the jail was hot. Like it was a very active, you know, a lot of aggression, a lot of fights, a lot of officer assaults. Um, but in that instant, yeah, I was, <laughs> it was really the first big fight. I mean, a one-on-one -on -one fight or a couple guys, you know, it's like, okay, I've seen that a hundred times, but this one, it was just out of nowhere. Um, just happened guys hit each other with, you know, locks and socks, feet at feet trays. Uh, just, it was nuts. Um, so I mean, we, eventually the entire jail came together, got it under control, uh, but it took a while. And yeah, that was definitely one of the moments I feared for my life. Um, Did anybody grab then, a hold of you? No, no, no. Okay. We, we were, we stayed fairly close to the door. Uh, positional. It, was, it, it was more so just the number of people. Well, that in the amount of aggression, like at the drop of a hat, it was almost, it was two groups of inmates that kind of pre-planned. I don't want to say all the inmates were involved. Uh, but it was like two gangs, two rival gangs going at it over something. 
Um, and as soon as one guy threw the first punch, it just kicked off. Um, so I was able to sneak out. We got it under control. Um, I've walked into a couple uh, at MCI. We had an entire rec hall, which actually had two tiers worth of inmates on it. Uh, refused to lock in. So they had a bunch of uses of force before I got there. And I, it looked like I walked into like a war scene, windows busted out, you know, blood everywhere, blood. Uh, pepper spray everywhere. Um, it was a long night. <laughs> I didn't really fear for my life that night, but I'm sure the guys that were involved in that before I got there definitely um, felt that way. But it normally doesn't happen until afterwards um, because you kind of kick into, hey, I got to take care of this. And then uh, afterwards, it's kind of like that adrenaline dump, like, you know, holy shit, what just happened? Um, those kind of things. Um, and then outside of work, uh, my my wife, I was actually at work one night. She started getting phone calls from an inmate. Um, and I immediately was like, whoa, this, this is not cool. Um, this is why I was here in town. And, of course, we live fairly close to the institution. Um, and the inmate wasn't really saying anything, but he was calling her multiple times. So I called over to the neighboring jail where this guy was at. and was like, Hey, go snatch this guy up. Like you need to take care of it. So luckily, uh, I won't mention the officer's name, but I called a friend who was there and called his tier. And I was like, Hey, or called where he was working at. And I said, Hey, I want you on this. And he's like, I got you. I was like, I, I, I gotta have, I got, I have to know that it's taken care of. Like, not necessarily, I want you to go, like, whoop his ass. But, like, I need to know that he's not going to be near a phone, at least until I get home. So um, the guy was church. doing research on you? No, no. Actually, we found out after looking at his call logs, he was just dialing random numbers. Um, but in the moment, I didn't know that. And my wife definitely didn't know that. Um, so, you know, she's at home, just scared to death. She's got both kids with her. Uh, and there I am at work, not being able to do anything about it. So luckily the guys next door took care of that problem right away. Um, and, uh, you know, it was pretty hairy situation. Yeah. Jesus God. From the chat, we got a question here. You said that you've dealt with inmates you knew previously. Have you run into someone on the street who was a <laughs> former prisoner that you oversaw? Thanks Jake. What's up machine? Absolutely. Uh, I was driving actually, uh, just a couple years ago, we were in LaVale, which is, kind of like the shopping area where we live, a lot of shops, a lot of restaurants. And uh, I was at a stoplight and a car pulled up next to me and uh, a window came down and I'm like, Oh, it must be somebody I knew. So I rolled the window down and here it was actually an inmate I had in Hagerstown who is like my tier janitor. Um, if that makes any sense, I got to hire my, I don't want to say hire my own inmates, but I got to pick who worked on my tier. Um, so Good behavior guys, kind of thing. Uh, for the most part and guys that I knew that weren't going to do stupid stuff. Like I would have to watch them, but I wouldn't have to worry about them you know, just skating around the jail, like leaving and be like, where, you know, where'd this guy go? Um, if I was ever an inmate, up. that'd be me. I'd just be, I'm going to go Absolutely. visit my friend real quick. <laughs> I'm a social butterfly. I can do what I want. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he pulled up next to me, rolled a window down and he's like, what's up, Iser? And I, instead of ignoring it, I looked over and I was like, oh, hey, what's up, man? And right away, I knew who he was. Um, it wasn't a weird interaction. Um, he, he was polite. He, you know, my wife and kids are with me. Um, and I was just like, Hey, I hope you're doing well, man. He's like, yeah, we're doing all right. And I know this guy's not from Cumberland, so I don't know why he was here. Uh, but you know, he, it wasn't, it wasn't awkward. It wasn't scary. Uh, I guess because it was him. Um, he was a pretty well behaved, I want to say well behaved than made. I mean, as good as you can be. Um, he was always respectful. Uh, he was actually like some sort of like karate master. The dude could do like backflip 
he, he would just stand there and do a standing backflip, do all kinds of kicks and stuff. Like he was kind of like a circus act, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, he was never, as, as far as I know, he was never a violent. I never saw a lot of violence out of him. Um, but yeah, that was weird. But it's and it's happened a couple of times. There's another guy. I'll, I'll talk about him because he's a piece of crap. Uh, his name's Yancey Bailey. Um, he's been in the news a lot lately. He likes to set fires and likes to. Uh, he, he's also a rapist, so I, I have no problem talking about him. He's a piece of crap. Um, but anyway, uh, my wife was doing home care with the, our local hospital. I actually had to go to his house, um, and she called me, you know, pretty upset after that. When she's like, "Hey, I just met this guy outside of, you know, do you know who this is?" He said he, he you know. What, how did he word that he was gonna you wanted to kill me i think is what he told you he said he um, if he goes back in he's gonna kill officers yeah yeah and he he saw her name and I, i'm sure he he's an idiot but i'm sure he could have put two and two together um but she felt pretty threatened by him which knowing him i i wasn't worried about her physical safety but you know he is a rapist so <laughs> i was yeah, like yeah you yeah. should leave you should leave he'll get his own help on his own like but yeah he's back in jail he's doing some time now yeah, yeah. From from the whole from our whole team from the Travis Two Four Show team, fuck that guy. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, um, so I, uh, one of my uh, very best friends uh, growing up, uh, he got into some trouble. I'm not going to talk say his name or his crime or anything okay. like that. But um, uh, being in prison, he only spent two years in prison, but it really it changed him. It changed him yeah. for the rest of his life. Uh, one of the things that he told me whenever we were kind of sitting down, having a couple of beers, talking about his time in prison, he said that one of the officers came into his jail cell and because of the nature of his crime, um, you know, he wasn't respected. And it wasn't just the inmates. It was the correction officers, too. There was a correctional officer that came in and said, hey, you're going to give me uh, your honey buns. He's like, I'm hungry. I want a snack. And uh, my friend um, was a, a badass martial artist, like very, very good at, at the martial arts. Very bad dude. And he, he told the correction officer, he was like, you know, you're going to have to fucking hurt me or you're going to have to fight me something. Because he was like, because this is all I have in here. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, it, it, and the, then the officer told him, he was like, I could fucking kill you right now. And nobody would ever blink an eye and I would absolutely get away with it. So do you still want to hold on to your honey bun? And my buddy stuck to his guns and still said, yeah, you're going to have to kill me then. And the the officer ended up letting it go. Did you see situations like that? Um, not so much like that. Uh, you know, I, I, in my experience, I never saw an officer go above and beyond what needed to happen. Um, luckily, again, I've worked with a lot of really good officers who took pride in what they did Thank and God. wanted to make sure we all went home. Um, there are bad eggs. I'm sure it happened while I was around. I just didn't see it. Um, there was plenty of officers. Kid I went to school with was an officer. He was uh, sneaking cell phones and drugs in, and I can only imagine how he was doing that. Um, and he ended up getting caught, uh, getting getting fired, went to court. Uh, actually ran into ran into him at an Applebee's, and he's like, "Hey, man, did you hear? I got off my charges." And I'm like, "Yeah, uh, you know, you, you could have got a lot of us hurt or killed." <laughs> you know, I, I could give I could give two shits less about you now. Um, yeah. So, and it was a kid I grew up with. Like I, I, I went to school with him my entire life, mm-hmm. and yeah, after that happened, I was like, "No, you put all of us in danger." So, no, it, even if that did happen, uh, I wouldn't have let it slide. And I know a lot of the people I work with wouldn't have let that slide uh, because that puts everybody in danger. 
Um, and that officer would have been made to quit either by us or, you know, we would have went, you know, not, not that we're, we don't like to snitch on each other either. Um, especially in the use of force, because in the use of force, we're all going home. Um, unfortunately in that situation, that inmate, uh, I, if, if they die, they die. I hate to say that. Um, but we're going home and that's, that's our goal every day is to go do our job and go home to our families. Um, so if an inmate wants to do something stupid and we have to step up, you know, what we're doing, it is what it is. Um, uh, luckily that didn't happen very often. Um, but in that situation, yeah, no, I never saw that. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, of course there was inmates we, you know, might've picked on a little bit or made fun of cause they look funny or acted funny, but a lot of them, it, they, they were cool with it. Not that we would ever really take it too far, but we were pretty much all they had other than each other. So a lot of inmates knew that and would respect that and respect us in that, in that aspect. Uh, but there's still always that line. Uh, so you got to walk that line with an inmate. Um, so as long as an inmate was respectful to me, I was respectful to them and a lot of guys and, and, and women that work that position are the same way. Uh, but unfortunately there's times where that's just not an option. <laughs> so we're in the last uh, 20 minutes of the show here. Let's go ahead and jump into this. Uh, who would you say is like the most violent, most infamous kind of character that you came across? Would you say? It, it's weird for me. I'll be honest with you. I've, I haven't been in that job for about five years now. Um, and a lot of that stuff I kind of purged from my memory. Um, I can't remember names of, ex I mean, certain individuals I remember for, I'll remember forever. Um, but when it comes to violent individuals, um, you know, there was a guy up here at North Branch that was always in trouble. Anytime he was put back into general population, he was right back into segregation, um, which is where I spent a lot of my time. Um, and, uh, I mean, if, are, are you talking about their actions in jail or do you want more of like what they were in for? Yeah. Maybe somebody who was in the fucking newspaper for what they did. Maybe <laughs> okay. you know. there was, there was quite a few guys, uh, probably the most disgusting individual was Joe Matheny. I'm sure a lot of people, uh, who are into that stuff know who Joe is. Uh, he was, uh, he had a couple different names, but, uh, like the hamburger uh, cannibal is what they called him. Um, hamburger so, cannibal. Yeah, we can jump into him if you want. Uh, he, he recently died a couple of years ago. Um, he, he pretty much was trying to kill himself, uh, through his diabetic issues. So Joe was, Joe was, uh, he was an older dude by the time I met him. Um, but I think he was arrested somewhere like in his forties. Uh, rumor has it, he, he was never charged with five murders. Um, but he was arrested for them. There just wasn't enough evidence. Um, his wife or girlfriend, whatever she was at the time, ran off with her pimp and were, you know, she was sold into that, that trade. Uh, she was doing a lot of drugs and it cost him a lot of money. It cost him his house. So he went to go after her Well, when he went to this tent city in Baltimore to find her, uh, she wasn't there. So he was interrogating people that were sleeping there. And when they couldn't give him an answer, he snapped and killed him. Um, he went, he, he killed five people in one night. Uh, he went to jail. He, he got arrested oh, for homeless it. people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fuck. And, uh, they, they, obviously they didn't know who she was, so he, he just killed him. Um, he went to jail for that, but he wasn't, uh, he was found innocent because there wasn't enough evidence. So he got back out. So when he got back out, he was working for a pallet company. And uh, this, this is kind of what I know about him and what he's told me. Um, and uh, he worked for this pallet company. And he, he was arrested for two murders at that time. But he told me 
and other people, you know, different numbers like 15, 20. Um, but he was burying the bodies like right behind this trailer. And it was at the end of a dead end road right next to a river. Um, and there was a night where he killed a girl and a guy on a fishing boat saw him and uh, came over to, I guess, help her or whatever. He ended up killing that guy. Um, but the most disgusting part about this guy was not just the fact that he was able to kill with no remorse, um, but he also opened up a hamburger, roast beef, pork sandwich stand, like a roadside stand. Um, and he was taking that, the, the product from his kills from those people and mixing it in with the meat and selling it to people that stopped by to, to get food. Um, he was featured in magazines. His barbecue is like the best in Baltimore. What um, the fuck? Dude, it's yeah. Around yeah. what time was this? What year? 90s, somewhere in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, sounds like a 90s thing. Yeah. 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 So he, uh, and he, he always joked, he, he actually wrote some letters that are pretty infamous now. Um, and one of the things he always said, he's like, you know, if you see a, a roast beef or a steak sub stand on the side of the road, uh, you got to be careful stopping there because you never know who you're going to eat, was what he, you know, he would joke about. And uh, so I, I pick and choose where I eat now, uh, thanks to thanks to that guy. Um, but he was he was huge. The guy was like six four, six five. Um, apparently, he was big his whole life. Uh, but when I met him, he was about five hundred fifty pounds. Wow. Um, yeah, I had an uncle who was a sergeant. The day I met him, uh, I was pretty pretty young into my career here at North Branch, and we had to do a tear shakedown where you had to search each cell, and we pulled him out of his cell, and he had to strip search him. Well, this dude was ready. He was completely nude, sitting on like two or three stacked plastic chairs because the one wouldn't hold him. Um, and he's like, you ready? And just stood up. And I mean, it, the guy could have been fully clothed. You wouldn't know the difference. Like he was just so big. Like there was no anatomy to be seen. Um, but he was he was a wild guy, man. He, he wasn't really respectful. He wasn't disrespectful. He was kind of, I mean, obviously crazy. Uh but, you know, he was willing to tell stories sometimes and talk about what he did and, you know, mess with you. Like, but yeah, and he, he would he never be, die. Yeah, he would, he, was he the kind of inmate that wasn't ever going to be eligible for parole? Kind of, he knows he's no, going to no, die. No, no, no. He, yeah, he, he actually got sentenced to the death penalty. Um, I don't remember why that was overturned. I know Maryland got rid of the death penalty somewhere in like the late 2010s because um, we had four or five inmates that were given life instead. Um, it was commuted. So, uh, how, how yeah, do you was... feel about the death penalty? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, I, I've never taken a life. Um, so I don't think I should be somebody who gets to decide that. Um, I, I think that's a difficult thing to do, but man, when you look at some of these crimes, you know, I've worked with, you know, I don't say work with, but I worked in an institution where guys were kids, where guys murdered kids, uh, went same with women. Um, I don't know why I feel different about the way women and children are treated than men because we're all humans. But at the same time, man, like I get it. I understand why the death penalty exists. Um, and sometimes those people cannot change. And I've seen seen that many times where, you know, the same person that was on the streets just elevated inside of a prison. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say I don't support it. Um, I think it was overused for a long time. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there was a lot of times where evidence wasn't able to support a death penalty, um, and they were, you know, potentially. There's there's all kinds of stories out there. The guys, guys and, and women both that received the death penalty were executed, and then years later find out that that person was innocent. Um, 
So that that part of me, unless it's a hundred percent, like you nailed them to rights, they admitted to it. You know, you, I, I would agree to that. But um, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm definitely of the school eye for an eye. I'm yeah. I'm for the death penalty for sure. But like you said, it there has to be fucking <clears throat> like yep. the case. I would actually be happy about the case being like public. If it if if it's a uh, death penalty case, I, I'd like the information to be out there for the public. So. You know, right. without a shadow of a doubt, we can all agree right. that the piece of shit had to die. <laughs> right. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And Joe was one of those guys who agreed that he should get the death penalty. Um, he was smart enough to know that what he did was terrible. Um, and he didn't want to be alive anymore because of what he did. Um, and when they told him, I, I don't, he even kissed his lawyer, I think he told me when he received the death penalty, like he thanked him for getting him the death penalty. Uh, but uh, he ended up getting life. And uh, instead of just waiting on his time to end, uh, the dude just, he, he had diabetes, which being that size, that, that tends to happen anyways. Um, but he just ate himself to death. Uh, he ended up losing legs. Uh, you know, his, wow. and his life was terrible. So to those families of the people he, he destroyed, he was not, uh, his, his life wasn't, wasn't good. <laughs> I mean, his quality of life was terrible. So uh, how, how quick does a guy like that, you know, losing his legs and stuff like that, how quickly does a guy like that get medical attention in the prison system? Or, uh, you know, it's usually pretty good. It's usually yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I want to say pretty good. It's not as good as what we would get if we go to our local hospital. Um, but, uh, you know, nurses in a jail or a prison, uh, they're there for the inmates. They're not there for us. So we, if, if I were to get hurt at, 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 which had happened multiple times, um, I would have to wait for an ambulance to show up. Uh, now, if it was a life-saving kind of thing, I'm sure those nurses would jump in and help, but they were not there for us. They were there for the inmates. Um, and I, I was always a fan of, hey, we need to have people in here for us too. Like, even if that person sits for a month and doesn't do anything, you know, they're getting paid in case they have to do something. And, and they just wouldn't, the state of Maryland wouldn't go for that. That was one thing our union pushed for was to have us medical care on site as well. Is it because the statistics just wasn't there? There wasn't enough of you getting Probably. hurt? Or... And money. Okay. Money. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Money's Unfortunately, a factor. <laughs> it always is. Yeah. So, what? okay. So, uh, uh, here on the tail end of the show here, what was the, the, because I don't think we touched on that. What was the injury? What's, what ended your career in the prison system? <laughs> uh, I don't think my boys watch and I, I haven't heard from him yet. Uh, but a lot of times, especially at North Branch, because it was a, a much more serious situation with violent inmates in three of the four housing units, um, a lot of them were mental health inmates, uh, so you never knew what you were getting into. Uh, those guys, got, talking about medical care, those guys had their own staff developed, uh, devoted to them. Um, so they got really, I don't want to say they got really good medical care, but they were, they got care, they got medication, they were usually, you know, full lithium and other things to, to keep them calm. Um, but we, we always had a battle buddy. So you hardly ever went anywhere by yourself. Um, so down there on a tier, you weren't by yourself ever. You always had somebody with you. Um, you may not be right next to each other, but you were out there together. So there was at least two of you. Um, and in this instance, we had a guy, uh, he was actually on pretrial, which is a weird thing Maryland started, where they would put pretrial inmates in maximum security institutions to wait on their trial before they were actually found guilty or not guilty. Um, and they ran out of space in Baltimore at the detention center. So they sent us like 30, 40 of them. And we had a guy who was just showing off. He was showing off for his boys. Uh, he was a big dude, like 6'3", 6'4", pretty heavy dude. 
Um, and he was in the shower. It, it was a normal, something we did every day, take guys to the shower, take them to medical, escort them. Uh, and there was two of us. He came out of the shower and he headbutted the guy that I was working with. Um, and as soon as he did that, you know, I kind of scooped him, took him to the ground. Well, uh, I had my hand up underneath of his arm on his back to force him to the ground. And when we all went down, this guy just, I felt like, you know, like a dog on a leash getting drunk behind a car. I just went with him. And when I did, I actually ruptured my pec, my bicep, my labrum, and something called a Vanguard ligament and dislocated my shoulder. Um, and in the moment, I didn't know I did it. Uh, right. So we continued. This guy was kicking, fighting. We had to, we had to fight with him, um, spitting on us, you name it. Uh, we took him to what's called a strip cage uh, so that we could put him in there, uncuff him, and let him chill out until the medical staff could come see him because he, he needed medical attention. Um, and uh, as soon as that whole situation calmed down, uh, about a minute afterwards, I started to kind of come down from the adrenaline. And uh, I just so happened to be in the sergeant's office getting ready to type my report up and, you know, to decompress a little bit. And I looked at my sergeant and this other officer and I said, hey, I, I don't feel good. Like something's wrong. Uh, threw up into a trash can because the pain just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I went to type, started typing on the computer, and I couldn't pick up my right arm. Um, and, you know, blood started to pool, and I was like, hey, I got to go to the hospital. Um, and a lot of us don't like to do that, uh, I guess, pride. Um, but I knew I had to. Uh, so, And I got to the hospital. Luckily, a, an old sergeant of mine who is now a nurse was working that night, saw my name come through, and was like, hey, I'm going to take this guy. And he, he pretty much told me right away, he's like, get a lawyer. Uh, take care of yourself, make sure you stay on top of your appointments, go, you know, you got to go see a specialist. And I ended up having two surgeries to repair everything. So. And, and the, the, they took care of you for all that. Yeah. 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 So it was, it was not a fun process. They, they do something called bleeding you out. They'll attempt to not pay you for months at a time to see if you'll just say, screw it. I got to go get another job. So you don't have to pay me anymore. Um, luckily my lawyer had a really good lawyer, Lloyd Saro. I'll throw him out there. He's a great dude. Uh, he was on top of it every time, you know, I'd be missing money. It was, Hey, either you pay this guy or we go to court. Um, you know, the medical stuff was fine. They took care of me. Um, you know, the surgeries were fine. Dr. Ball in Morgantown did my first one. Uh, he wasn't able to fix it. He pretty much told me like I did my best, but you got to go see this other guy. What was the other guy's name? You remember? Uh, he was in uh, MedStar in Baltimore, hmm. uh, but he was fantastic. I was actually his last surgery before he retired. Uh, I do remember that. I went into his office and nothing was in there. It was just me and him at a desk uh, for my last appointment. So, uh, But he was able to pretty much do plastic surgery inside my shoulder to kind of move stuff around to make it work again. So I still have some neuropathy issues, but uh, other than that, it's fairly normal. And that retirement was actually based off of not the injury itself, uh, it was because I couldn't return to work within a year. So at the end of that, I actually got lucky uh, because, as you know, I, I mentioned I, I do some pro wrestling on the side, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, that would have been one thing. I, I knew I, I wasn't going to be able to do that again. Um, so once they were able to get me fixed up, my lawyer was like, hey, you're good to go. You can live a normal life. And I was like, hey, can I wrestle again? And he's like, well, physically, if you can, no one can say anything about it. And it's because that retirement was based off of my inability to return after a year. So I got lucky. Had had they decided before that year, it was based off the injury. I would have been, I would have had to have been really careful what I did. So, so had you already gotten into pro wrestling uh, before this injury yeah. happened? Yeah. So I signed up with the Elite Pro Wrestling Alliance in 2012. 
Uh, they actually had uh, big time wrestling come through with Ric Flair, mm-hmm. uh, Matt Hardy, a bunch of different people. I don't know if you were there that night or not, uh, but that was the night I was like, I got to do this. So I stayed after, talked to Jake Davis, to George Davis, uh, you know, got hooked up. And they said, if you want to start now, start now, help us tear down everything. So I I, I got that baptism and, you know, the, the, the not so glamorous side of, of independent wrestling. Um, but that's when that started. So I did it for, uh, I guess it would, it would have been about five, four or five years before I got hurt. Um, and then of course, why I was hurt, I, I was just kind of a hermit, couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. Yeah. Uh, just in the last couple of years, uh, me and you have uh, gotten a little bit closer. Um, I now in retrospective, I am remembering, yeah, you kind of went away for a while. <laughs> yeah yeah i didn't talk to anybody i didn't didn't go to, i went to maybe two shows uh only because uh you know somebody gave me the dirt on what was going to happen and i needed to be there um so I, you know i'd go to I, I but i i bought a ticket i sat in the crowd i didn't go backstage i didn't uh hang out with the boys afterwards like i just like any other fan i went to watch the show and went home um i think i only went to two yeah yeah, after uh, going through like a like surgeries like that and kind of having yeah. like re- repairing yourself like that, um, it it just shows that you really do love pro wrestling if you're willing to fucking get back into the ring after a surgery <laughs> like that. Well, the way I looked at it, um, and it was something I mentioned to you before. I wanted to make sure we talked about tonight was the mental health side of things, um, mm-hmm. and uh, part of what I think hurt me the most was not being able. Am I going to be able to have a catch with my kids? Am I going to be able to? Mm-hmm go jump on a trampoline without hurting myself again. Uh, because at the time I would sneeze and my shoulder would pop out of place. Um, it was terrible. So I, the, the weight of, am I going to be normal again? Um, and I can only imagine how other injuries the people feel, you know, maybe they're paralyzed or maybe they get a a crazy medical diagnosis. Uh, I'm lucky. And I know that. Um, but part of me was, I felt like it was taken away from me. I didn't feel like it was my choice to be done. Um, and you know, as well as I do with, with this industry, like once you get into it, it's really hard to walk away. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I know you just had a retirement match. I know that was, that was a difficult night for you, but that was your decision. It was your time to say my entering life is, is going to be, be over. And you got to choose when that was. Um, and that's kind of why I came back. I wish. <laughs> well, <laughs> if I but, didn't have a but, neck injury, I'd absolutely, I'd be, I'd, I'd be on those D- WDWA shows with you. Right. Yeah. But, but again, like, and you know how I feel then. I mean, if, if you, yeah. if, if it's not you just saying, Hey, this is my last match. Let's book this last match for me. And then I'm going to ride off into the sunset. That's why I'm back. Uh, yeah. I I'm also back because I'm passionate about it. Um, I'm surrounded by a great group of people everywhere I work um, that have given me an opportunity to, to do what I love to do best. And, and that was what was weighing on me when I, when I wasn't able to mm-hmm. continue working to support my family. Uh, the question is, is that that workers compensation check going to show up this week or, you know, am I going to be able to even use that right hand anymore? Uh, it, it was scary. It was scary. So when I when I got the green light to get back into it, that was my first phone call. Like I hung up with a lawyer. I called Elite Pro and I was like, hey, I'm back. And, you know, they were like, all right, let's you know see where you're at. and We'll decide if we want you. And, and luckily, you know, that it's been home for, you know, give or take nine or ten years now. Um, and it's, it's been the most, most enjoyable thing, uh, outside of, you know, what time I spend with my family and friends that I've ever done. Um, so it, it honestly, in, in saying that, uh, knowing that those guys were there for me through the process and afterwards, um, probably saved, saved my life. 
um, gave me a better quality of life during that. Um, and, you know, you hear guys say it all the time, like wrestling saved my life or, you know, wrestling's, you know, the only thing that makes me happy. Um, and, and true, truthfully, I look forward to the getting to travel and go do shows. I look forward to going to train with guys, um, knowing that there was a time where I thought I wasn't going to be able to. Um, so for anybody else watching, uh, you know, if you're a correctional officer, you have, uh, family members that are correctional officers, it, it's difficult. Uh, the, the mental health side of this is very, very difficult. Um, you know, my situation was different than somebody else's, but uh, it would be in your best interest and your family's best interest to, to get help. Um, and I, I still go to see a psychiatrist is like maintenance. Uh, we just do check-ins. Um, and, you know, I was going a couple times a week for a while to deal with anger management issues, to deal with the mental health side of things. And uh, so I, I don't, don't have too much pride not to go like you guys. If, if you're struggling, even if you're not sure if you're struggling, go find out. Um, not all psychologists would just want to medicate you. Uh, they tried with me. It didn't work, but luckily just getting to have a conversation with somebody to, to know I was in a safe, safe place to deal with what I was dealing with. Uh, just go get help. I mean, it's, it's worth it. It's, yeah. It saved my marriage, saved my family, saved friendships. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Man, what a way to end the show. That was a great message. Fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, and hey, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Yep. One of the big things about the Travis Dufour show is uh, uh, this is this is a way for people to meet people that I respect and people that I care about. Uh, anybody that I've ever have on, had on this show um, so far uh, are people that I really uh, look up to um, and colleagues of mine in the professional wrestling business that Pro wrestling isn't the only thing that defines them, you know, and I like to learn more about them on my show. And that's what we did today. And uh, uh, hell of a message there from you, Mike Iser. Um, thanks, brother. Thank, appreciate it. Thanks again for coming on to the show. Um, and I, there's not going to be a better way to end this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was episode 10, and we will see you guys next week.